0: Star Wars 7x7 episode 3,189. We're continuing our mini-series of mid-season review episodes for The Mandalorian season three. Can't believe we're four episodes in already. And today we're gonna talk about Bo-Katan because this season is turning out to be just as much about her as it is about Mando and Grogu. Punch it. Hey Rebel Rouser, I'm Alan Voivod and this is Star Wars 7x7, your daily dose of Star Wars Joy, and thank you so much for joining me for it. So we're here to talk about bo today as part of our mini-series of mid-season check-in episodes around Season 3 of The Mandalorian. This season really has been very much about Bo-Katan, and there have also been some significant reversals of fortune for her throughout the course of the season so far. But before we get into what's happened with Season 3, let's remind ourselves of where we left her at. at the end of season two at the end of season two we had the episode the rescue where they got onto Moff Gideon's light cruiser and (laughs) Po Katan out of this whole exchange just had one thing to say she said whatever happens Moff Gideon is mine now she didn't necessarily say why that was the case and maybe that might have been a little bit helpful but ultimately probably wouldn't have stopped what happened between Moff Gideon and the Mandalorian and Mando winning the Darksaber that, oh boy, (laughs) the steam radiating off Bo-Katan at the end with Moff Gideon going, ha ha, right? That was just terrible terrible. And honestly, I'm surprised Bo-Katan didn't just sucker punch din. He was willing to give it anyway, but just the clock him in the side of the helmet and that would have been the end of it, right? But no, of course it couldn't be that way because then we wouldn't have any drama for season 3. And it's probably not aligned with either The Way or The Night Owls or Clan Crees, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, so we meet her in season 3 and a lot has changed. And according to Jon Favreau, it may be as much as year from the events of the end of season two to where we pick up things in the beginning of end of season three because he said in an interview and he kind of couched it and he kind of backtracked on it a little bit it was one of those live red carpet interviews but he did seem to suggest that time passing in the Mandalorian is similar basically to where it's passing in our world so it was October of 2019 when Mando season one premiered, now it's March of 2023 when Mando season three premieres, so we're like three years in change potentially down the line, which means we're a year in change down the line from the end of season two. And things have gone from bad to worse for Bo Katan, we find out, because not only did she not win the Darksaber, but when she returned to what is for all intents and purposes her Mandalorian covert, they just said, All right, you didn't get the Darksaber, see you later, alligator, and they took her her entire hijacked fleet with them and became mercenaries. Now in yesterday's episode, when I talked about our sort of 30,000 foot view of the season so far, there was one thing that I didn't mention and it's actually particularly relevant to the discussion today, who is it that attacked bo on Kalevala, right? So we know it was a bunch of Imperial ships, but we don't know if it was somebody associated with Moff Gideon or if it was another Imperial warlord entirely, or if this was the Mandalorians that had formerly been allied with her, suddenly deciding that she was important enough that she just needed to be taken out entirely but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So she is in a horrible place when we see her at the beginning of the season. And then Mando goes off to Mandalore and Grogu ends up having to fly the ship back for help. She's about to kill the Mandalorian, I'm pretty certain, when she's looking through the window and seeing the N1 come back. But when she sees it's Grogu, she's like, all right, tell me what's going on because this makes it clear that Maybe something's going on in Mandalore that's actually worth her attention. So suddenly things go from a negative to a positive for her. And then things go to an even greater positive when she gets to the surface of Mandalore and finds out that it is no longer poisoned for all intents and purposes, that the air is actually breathable. And she's able to go down into the deep subterranean caverns, not quite down to the mines of Mandalore, at least, you know, not underneath them, I guess. But when she has the fight with that crazy arachnid mech thing, you know, the other thing i thought about that too was that well that thing took the darksaber from mando and so she fought that thing and got it back so technically doesn't she own that thing but uh, i guess she has to fight mando directly for it somehow so yeah it's another opportunity that she had to recover the thing that just doesn't quite work out the way she wants it to so a little bit of a negative turn there but then we get a super positive turn for her after mando is sucked underneath the living waters and she goes to rescue him and she actually gets to see a mythosaur when she had been just being snarky about the myths around Mandalorian culture and talking very, uh, you know, very despondently about what Mandalore had been like and not with any sort of positive emotion about what her family situation had been like, sharing all of that backstory stuff with Dinjarin. But then she has this event with the power and the potential to turn her entire life around by seeing the mythosaur, by realizing that, yeah, the things that her culture is based upon, these are real things that she can actually hold on to and can light the spark of hope inside of her. Then, then we get the negative turn with the Imperial ships attacking her and the Mandalorian and bombing her castle on Kalevala. So goes negative there. And then at least she has a place where she can go. So we start to get a little bit of positivity heading back to as yet the unnamed planet where the Mandalorian covert is with the children of the watch. And we find out that she can actually be redeemed in the eyes of this covert and they will welcome her in based on the fact that she was in the living waters and just for good luck and good measure, she hasn't taken her helmet off since. Then she gets to a new positive level by getting to lead the war party to retrieve Paz son Ragnar. That's a lot of stuff that's been happening for her in season three of The Mandalorian. What a reversal of fortune it's been overall for her, starting the season with nothing, now being part of a Mandalorian covert and actually being seen as a leader in their eyes. And This is something that Dave Filoni just recently talked about in an interview with The rap. so I'm going to give you a bit of a quote from that interview. He says that the story is by definition The Mandalorian and speaks to that part of the Star Wars saga that we're now telling specifically about Din Djarin and Grogu, but they've pulled into their orbit many other Mandalorian characters, namely Katie Sackhoff's Bo-Katan. You have the armor, and I think that it starts to raise a lot of questions about the way and what is the way. And when they speak vaguely about their home planet of Mandalore, which was basically lost and really destroyed in the war with the Empire, is there any chance of rectifying that, reclaiming that? So with Dave Filoni's insights to kind of enlighten us and potentially point away for where things are going for the rest of the season. Well, now we have the possibility that Bo-Katan could convince the Children of the Watch that maybe it's time to go back to Mandalore. The whole goal for her at the end of season two as she had said it was to reclaim Mandalore. It didn't seem like it was gonna be able to happen for her when we saw her at the beginning of season three, but now it seems like she has a group of Mandalorians that she's allied with who could possibly help her do that and there are dozens of people in this covert from when we saw it at the beginning of the season. It looks like the numbers have increased. Maybe that's just a function of how many other Mandalorians were off earning their keep to bring wages back into the covert, or maybe they've been recruiting more people and they've been finding more of the Children of the Watch or more people out there who are willing to convert to be Children of the Watch somehow. And yes, I know there would be (laughs) some sort of deal around that where they you know would have to be inducted somehow and they would have to make accommodations for the helmet thing or maybe not I don't know (laughs) we're gonna find out a little bit more about that but this is now a significant group we have no idea how large Bo-Katan's previous group was but yeah I think we've got some significant juice for Bo as she thinks about going back to Mandalore. The only other question out there then is does she challenge the Mandalorian for the dark and if anybody's going to beat him it's probably her. I know Paz Vizsla took a really good shot at it in the Book of Boba Fett and Almost had him, so, yeah, if anybody knows how to beat him and get the Darksaber back, it is likely Bo-Katan, and she's wielded that thing before. She knows how it works, how to use it, and she also will find out very quickly that the Mandalorian doesn't know how to wield that thing in a way that, you know, doesn't make it like this enormously heavy, ridiculous implement. But first, I think we're going to solve Grief Karga's pirate problem on Navarro, so... <laughs> There's still a lot to do in these last four episodes of The Mandalorian, but I think that pretty much wraps up where Bogotan is as far as her journey goes in Season 4, what we might have to look forward to for her journey for the rest of the season, and that is going to do it for this episode of the podcast. It just remains for me to say, thank you so much for joining me for it. As always, and may the Force be with you wherever in the world you may be.